Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Faber Podcast, to mark the centenary of the birth of William Golding. A couple of years ago, I interviewed John Carey about his biography of Golding, an interview that's still available in the Faber Podcast archive. And this spring, Faber has published a book to complement that biography, a memoir by the author's daughter, Judy Golding, entitled The Children of Lovers. The children of lovers, so the proverb says, are orphans. And that was often how Judy and her brother felt during their childhood, which was spent near Salisbury in the 1950s. There was no mistaking the fact that Golding's most intense relationship was with his wife. Even though, as Judy Golding writes, palpable affection rose off him rather like steam, he could sometimes be difficult and hard for a child to understand. I need to make these two men one, Judy Golding writes, the warm, embracing man I adored, and the indifferent, sometimes self-centred, occasionally cruel man who could drink too much, could be crushing, contemptuous, defeating, deadening. This is hard. Hard it may have been, but the memoir which results from the attempt is, in the words of Penelope Lively, a book that deserves to become a classic memoir of childhood. Another reviewer, Kate Kellaway, called it skillful, subtle, uncommon. I was lucky enough to record an extensive and wide-ranging interview with Judy Golding last month, in which she spoke frankly about her early family life and her feelings for her father. My first question was whether it had been a difficult decision to embark on the book in the first place. It wasn't really a difficult decision because it wasn't essentially my decision at all at the start. A man called John Bodley, the great John Bodley of Faber, said to me quite soon after my father's death, would I consider writing a memoir, would this be something that I thought I could do? And I thought I could. So I sat down at my computer and immediately started rushing these memories down onto, well, onto disk and later onto paper. And I did that in a hurry because I thought I'd forget things. I had no idea how tenacious all these memories were. And how, in fact, I'd found more and more things just by digging, essentially. I think it's a fascinating experience, learning about your own memory and learning about how much is not there on the surface but can be rediscovered. Once I'd got all this stuff together, a nice wadge of pages, I thought, well, this is easy. And it was only once I came round to the idea of structuring it that I thought perhaps not so easy, and how do I avoid being boring if I start at square one and go on to the end and then stop? It's not going to be very good, it's going to sag. So I didn't solve that problem for a long while. While my brain was kind of cogitating, I did lots of research that ultimately I passed on to John Carey, and I'm glad to say quite a lot of it did did, um, have a function, especially all the interviews that I'd done and an assistant of mine had done talking to relatives, some of whom produced marvellous insights that I think had been completely passed over, really, in the family myth of this, this great man. There were there were things to learn. I suppose essentially the problem for me, it was twofold. It was partly the thing of how do you write about your parents and come to terms with the idea they're not perfect. And it was partly the structural thing of how do you tell a story when you can't really tell it completely episodically, which is of course the way you remember it. And the answer is you're writing a book. You're not having a stream of consciousness experience. The reader deserves better than that. And so I tried to balance out having a structure with having the impression of association of ideas. And that's really the way I've organized the book. But I didn't consciously do that. I tried really just to set off and see what what would work. And did you feel when you set out on it that there were un- 
unresolved questions about your relationship with your parents that you wanted to explore through it? Was it in itself a way of coming to terms? Because you, you, there's a very memorable scene in the book where your father is standing in a, in a stairwell and he tells you that it took him 30 years to come to terms with the death of his father. And I wondered how resolved you felt things were when you embarked upon this. I think it was very unresolved, and I think that's a very good example. I thought when he told me that it had taken him 30 years, I thought, come along, really, this can't be true. And it's interesting to reflect as well that that meant, if true, which I think it probably was, it meant he had only just got over that death, because 30 years from 1958... 1988, and it was about that time when he told me, a little bit later perhaps. And I think what he was saying was perhaps both have confidence that you will come to terms with it, but also don't rush it. And I think he might have been talking about actually composing the memoir, though I don't know what he would have thought about my doing that. I was also struck by the fact that you often, well, fairly often in the book, say it took me 30 years to appreciate what this meant, or it took me 40 years to come to terms with this. And that, to me, also suggested there was a, there was a sort of necessary amount of time which had to, had to pass for things to sort of percolate and, and resolve themselves in your, in your mind. Losing your parents, I'm sure anybody who's had this experience would, would agree is a really, really big thing in your life. And it's not just, although initially it is just, the monumental grief. It's also that there's a huge amount to sort out in your head. In my case, this was compounded, I think, by the fact that the memory of my father, at any rate, couldn't fade as it normally does because not only are his books lying around all over my house, but I was transcribing this enormous diary that he left, and I was doing it all on my own at the top of the house at my computer. And by the evening, I would feel that I'd had more contact with this dead person than I had with anyone else. So it was a very weird combination of somebody being dead and yet being around in your mind in a very lively way. There's also the question of do you feel your parents are still great authority figures? Do you feel they're good people? Do you feel they're a mixture? And I suppose it's no surprise really to, to say that uh, you have to get to the point when you accept that they're a mixture. And I, th I feel I probably have, at least to a degree, which is lucky since I'm 65. And uh, yeah, these things, uh, these things should be achieved before one uh, dies as well. You write about your first memory of your father, and presumably memories of your father are among your, your very first memories. What, what, what do you remember about him when you were very small? I remember his size, which is odd because he was actually quite a small person. Even when he was kind of young and vigorous, he was only five foot eight. And by the time he was an elderly man, I think he was much shorter than that. But he was always incredibly lively. I remember his size, his solidity, his warmth, and also the fact that he, I felt, kept me safe. And that was a very important aspect of him. And for some reason, I was a rather anxious child. I don't know why. And this came out, especially in my tendency to scream the place down at night, which must have been very, very hard to live with, I think. And uh, I'm sorry about that. But I couldn't help it. You know, I was two and a half, three, four. And really, I don't think a child of that age is responsible for being frightened. And he tried to be very patient, and on the whole, I think he was. My mother would sleep through anything. She slept through the great 
imagination is her thing. She slips through masses of things. And she certainly appears to have slept through a lot of my um, screaming, but my father did not. Part of the reason for that, one assumes, is that he had had his own nocturnal terrors in his childhood. I think that's so. And I think it probably meant that the sound of somebody being frightened entered his consciousness more easily than it did my mother, who seems to have had a childhood that was very happy and very crowded. She had nine brothers and sisters, and I imagine there was always somebody around. There is a sort of animal, almost feral sort of sense of your sort of physical attachment to him. You write about palpable affection coming off him rather like steam, and I thought it was a very, a very good sort of image. And his sort of physical presence you evoke very, very strongly. It seems, it seems it must have impressed itself on you quite tenaciously. He was a very physical person. He was a, a real man of action. He was always running, even in his, certainly his late 70s, perhaps even when he was 80. The sense of his size and warmth and breadth and solidity has always stayed with me. And when I, when I saw his dead body, I mean, part of the reason why I knew it was dead was because he was not there as this lively person anymore. You could see it was just completely unlike him. The memory of, um, of touching him and smelling him and hearing him is just so vivid. In a way, I'm surprised that I've conveyed it because it's always very hard to convey things that are obvious to you. I was struck by it, I think, very early on in the book, when you, you, just, you begin the book describing a sailing accident that, that the family is involved in in 1967, when you're in your early 20s. And after the danger, well, the, the, the immediate danger has receded, you describe your parents as being like two small bear-like children. And I thought it was a very arresting, unusual, but telling image of them. What were you, what were you sort of getting out there? What was it that impressed you about, about that? One of the reasons why I put that episode at the beginning of the book was because it was a huge turning point. It was the point in my life where I stopped completely seeing my parents as these enormous Olympian figures who should look after me. And I began to understand that they were quite small and quite vulnerable. That was, I think, the strongest, perhaps the first and the strongest physical experience of that, that fact. They were just like frightened children. And they were clinging to each other in the most desperate way. You write as, a, as an epigraph to the book that the children of lovers are orphans. When did that thought first occur to you? Or when did the feeling first be, begin to make itself felt? I think the feeling was always there. And again, you know, it's like a fish in water. Uh, it's hard to be conscious of something if it's the ambient surround. What I suppose happens, perhaps this is a bit of a confession, I was trying to think. I've gone through reams of paper trying to think of titles for this book. And something just sparked this thought about the proverb. And in fact, it must have been later on enough because I distinctly remember when I first thought of it I remember googling it which dates it as quite late in the process and finding out that yes it was a proverb but I think the sense of being less important than my parents and the acceptance the awareness that I never expected to have a great heroic love affair as they did I never expected to be the centre of the story. I think that was there very early on. And I said, well, I shouldn't speak for my brother. I don't know that it was true for him. But I think my feeling was 
extremely early and very permanent. You also describe the family structure as having a diagonal cut through it. In other words, your relationship with your father was much closer than your relationship with your mother, and conversely, your, brothers was, was your brother was closer to your mother. Again, was that something which you felt very early on? Yes, I think so. I think so. Partly because when we were small children, my father was thought to be the person like me. I was thought to take after him. And similarly, my brother was thought to take after my mother, both in looks, in that he had the same colouring as she did, dark hair and blue eyes. And I had sort of muddy brown hair and greeny eyes like my father. Um, but also I think it was a matter of what we thought we were good at. And I think that comes from being encouraged in particular areas by these two parents on a sort of diagonal basis. But I think it's also true that we just... David was close to my mother, and I was very close to my father, and that was just a fact. But you go as far as to say at one point that your mother felt to you a bit like a stepmother, which is quite a, it's quite a strong judgment of your relationship, isn't it? Yes, it is, and it occurred to me only recently that I have no experience of people being stepmothers, and it may be that I'm being very unfair to stepmothers. What I essentially felt was that she was more, far more interested in Daddy than she was in me, and that she also was interested in David, but that the primary focus of her life, the first relationship was with her husband. And that in a sense, it was almost as if her relationship with the children was through him rather than directly with her. As if almost he interpreted the importance of them back to her. I don't know. And obviously this wasn't true in the way we were, we were very well looked after and fed and um, clothed and sent to all these expensive schools and everything. But it's, it's a matter of the feeling and these are the feelings that I had. Did you feel that you belonged to an unconventional family in the, in the, the 50s, before the, the success of, of Lord of the Flies when your father was still a struggling writer? And it seemed that you were living in Amelia, even, even to have a beard was, was, was somewhat unconventional. To be a writer, I think you describe it as viewed as unhealthy by, by society, the, the society you lived in. That's absolutely true. Um, and it wasn't just that. I mean, we seemed, I think, to people almost willfully eccentric in that we didn't have a car, but we did have a boat. And we didn't have the right sort of boat, and we didn't sail it in the right sort of way. And we didn't really fit in, I suppose. The, the, my mother always fitted in very well and was always very well liked and regarded as very normal, except in this bizarre affection for my father, to whom she was quite clearly, totally devoted. But he really was regarded as eccentric, and I think a lot of this on his part was completely unselfconscious. I don't think he set out to be unusual in any of the ways, the, these relatively superficial ways. I think he wanted to be unusual as a writer, but he didn't care that people thought he dressed peculiarly or that he looked untidy or that he looked abstracted. He thought that was his business. And, and when you were young, did you have a sense that his writing was the most important thing in your family's life? I don't think so. Not early on. I think early on I felt that sailing was very important to him and that life with my mother was very important to him and that that was about it really and other th 
other things, I mean, music was always hugely important to him, terrifically important. And he wanted to do it lots and lots, all the time. He wanted to play the piano. He would even play for us to sing, which, I mean, can't have been a great source of joy to him. But he did it over and over and over again, and we were always singing around the piano. And that was a very big part of our life, actually, now I'm talking about it. One of the other great passions of his life in the 50s was the theatre. And he did quite a lot of directing and a little bit of acting. But also, we went to a great number of plays, Shakespeare mostly, but not exclusively. This was when there was one play a week at the Playhouse in Salisbury. And we would just go every week. And his life clearly changed as a result of Lord of the Flies, and, and you had more money too. But do you remember the, the family the family life in general changing, the family dynamic? Did, did priorities seem to be shifting at that time? I remember the fantastic anxiety about money slightly lessening, though it never went away, even when my father was relatively well off. He never stopped worrying about money. I remember that we did things like buying a car. We went off to buy all these cars. Eventually, we even had a television. And eventually, one could buy the books one wanted, which before that was quite a big thing. And I suppose, what else? Well, I do remember my father having a suit. And to begin with, he really didn't. He had a demob suit and an officer's uniform. And at things like my aunt's wedding, for example, he wore his officer's uniform, which he was just still entitled to wear because he was in charge of the CCF at AWS. But he never really was interested in clothes. My mother had fabulous clothes, even when we were poor, because she made them. So the transition was a pretty gradual one. I think the first real thing I noticed was that all these people appeared all these people down from London. And some of them really were quite extraordinary. I mean, this marvellous man with this terrible stutter who came down one, to supper one night and was absolutely fascinating and very attractive. And he was, he was Kenneth Tynan. So people like that started um, drifting through our flat. And your father also began to be in London more. The, the literary world of London became one of the areas where he would spend some of his time. That's true, and I think that was exciting for him, and possibly it was a bit... Before that, I think they'd shared most things that were good. But I don't think my mother went up to London with him all the time. She did quite a lot. She did a bit. But obviously somebody had to hold the fort with two relatively small children. And I think when he did come up to London, he made a lot of very good friends, which I think is fairly unusual, certainly for a man of his generation. And some of these friends really were friends for the rest of his life, people like Peter Green, the classical scholar, and Wayland Young, who gave the um, eulogy at his memorial service and Anthony Storr, and of course Michael Ayrton, the painter and sculptor. So there were a lot of interesting people, and life broadened out, and I think that was very good for him. I think it also meant there was a bit of drink involved, which was perhaps not quite so good. And he was in his early 40s by the time Lord of the Flies came out, and he'd been writing for a good number of years by that stage. Did that bring him satisfaction, do you think, or did the anxieties, you mentioned the anxiety about money, but the anxiety about then going on from that success and writing other books, did that, did that remain to, to dog him? I think it brought him satisfaction, but it didn't endure. And I think this happened every time he finished a book, even if it was very well received. And, of course, I think it was much worse if it wasn't. He said somewhere that once you've written a book, it's not that you think you won't write another one. You absolutely know you won't write one. 
And I think that's causing great anxiety. And at one stage, this period from, well, from throughout most of the 70s, he really was searching for a book to write. And eventually, of course, he found one, and then he found another. And so for a while, in the late 70s, he was actually writing two books concurrently, both Darkness Visible and Rites of Passage. So it was very ironic that he should have searched all this time for a book and then found two. But it never stopped being a matter of anxiety. And I think the satisfaction, he always said that satisfaction was one of the great things in life, satisfaction in having done something well. I think he felt about Lord of the Flies and about The Inheritors, which was his favorite of all his books, and I think he's undoubtedly the best. Those gave him great satisfaction, and even perhaps Pinchon Martin, though that wasn't as well received. The other one I think he thought was very, was a really good piece of work, was The Spire, and that of course also had quite a mixed reception. But in general, he just accepted that he was doing a job. Tell me about how your own relationship with him changed as you reached adolescence. It seems that was quite a, a testing time for, for both of you. Yes, well, it's not unusual for one's children's adolescence to coincide with the parents' some version of midlife crisis, and this is exactly what happens with my life and my father's, that when I was about 16, he was heading off into what you might describe as serious middle age. Um, let's see, when I was 15, that was 1960, 61, he was 50. So that was a period where he was beginning to be successful, he was beginning to be admired and listened to, and I think perhaps he wasn't ready to be quite so understanding of his children, both his children, as he had been before. And perhaps it mattered more to him, I don't know. But also, as he became more famous, I think the pressures on the two of us became a bit more articulate in the sense that people would actually say, and what are you going to do when you grow up? You know, you're going to be a writer too. Which, particularly for my brother, I think was very unhelpful. I mean, there was a stage when if people asked me that, I would just say no, which was rather rude. But sometimes you just have to stop people encroaching on your own difficulties. You know? And I think that was actually something my father found when people said, and are you writing something else? This became just such a terrible thing when people would say it quite innocently. And, you know, they'd think they were being polite or expressing a polite interest. And he would just completely freeze up. And I think the beginnings of his anxiety, he says in the piece he writes called History of a Crisis. He says he doesn't know when it began and he mentions these dates, 1951 or perhaps 1961, that is when he was 40, when he was 50. And then he says of oh, 1911, which is when he was born, come to that, he says. And then he says, but by 1971 it was unendurable. And of course, by that time, I had at last succeeded in leaving home. I'd got married, I'd got my house in Oxford, I'd generally flown the coop. And so my own understanding of that crisis is quite limited and it's really restricted to, to his writings because I just wasn't there. And so I think there were, there were parallel crises, both for David and for me and for my father, and probably for my mother as well. I mean, it, it, from the way you describe it, it does sound as though he could be really cold and crushing when it came to arguments, particularly about things like politics. You, you were expressing left-wing sentiments, and you talk about his cold 
deliberate rage which could leave you feeling shriveled and obliterated. Those are very strong feelings, aren't they? They've obviously left a, a fairly intense mark. Yes, they did. And I still don't understand them because he says in his journal, he's always voted Labour, so why all these desperate fights? I really don't know. I think the answer must be he probably wasn't fighting me. Perhaps he was fighting the remnants of his disputes with his father. I don't know. But it was an extraordinary and horrible bit of our lives together. His father was a very convinced socialist of a rather old school. I mean, he was a socialist from the time he was a young man. And I think from conviction, because of his own experience of dragging himself up from a relatively, well, really a poor background and finding the struggles he had to be unfair as well as um, very testing. And I think my father seems to have felt that this world was a, was a rather dull one. And I think that he and his father had arguments about it. And perhaps when I voiced these ideas in no doubt a rather pompous way, he just felt he couldn't endure them. But I must say, I really can't understand treating a child of one's own, or even of anybody else, actually, that way. I have to assume that, that it just sprang out of some, some very deep emotional uh, conflict that I was not really aware of. You, you write of his dangerous side. And I wonder if you could say what you, what you thought of as his dangerous side as being. I don't mean that he was actually dangerous as a person who might be violent. That really isn't true. He was a very unviolent man. He did get drunk, and he did get very angry when he was drunk, I think partly with himself. And I think it's true to say that drink was a trap for him after a certain point. A lot of the time he just drank socially very comfortably. And he liked wine. But if, if there were other conditions, if there was a situation he found very annoying, if there was somebody there he thought was foolish, then we would suddenly be in a situation that felt dangerous, partly because he was obviously doing himself such damage. So his dangerous side, I think, was the bit of him that he normally felt should really be under control. And I think most of it was anger. And some of the time it came out, mostly if he drank too much, but sometimes if he was sober, if he was sober, he could be very angry indeed. You write in the book about a visit you make with him to the Cannes Film Festival at the time of the film of Lord of the Flies. And I wondered if, in retrospect, you see that as a sort of decisive moment that where you began to put more distance between himself and you. I think you, you talk about the huge figure of my childhood beginning to shrink. Yes. Well, in 1963, the Peter Brook film of Lord of the Flies was entered for the Cannes Film Festival. And my father was invited to go, and it was assumed that my mother would go with him. At the time, I was recovering from a breakdown and my mother decided that it might help me to go with my father. And I think it did, though not in the way perhaps that she imagined. At a similar age, she would have been an absolute knockout. She was, very, she was always very good looking, but I think as a teenager she was probably completely stunning. And she would probably have been snapped up by a film director or something. I was completely different, hopelessly buried in this aftermath of this breakdown. No sort of companion to my father, and not very good at talking to anybody else. And the situation became very frustrating for him. And there was also, there was somebody else there he got really annoyed with. 
And I don't remember who that was, but I do remember somebody ringing up to apologize about it. Anyway, my poor old dad, in frustration, I think mainly, and in anger, got rather drunk. And I basically had to put him to bed and let him sleep it off. At that point, I was 17, nearly 18. And I was beginning to feel it was time that I grew up. And I think I felt at this point, I have grown up a bit. And my father has shrunk a bit. And I think that was probably a very good thing. Tell me about the flappy-eyed young women. When he went to the States with your mother, he was a great literary success. He was lionized. There seemed to be lots of young women throwing themselves at his feet. What, what, what effect did that have? I must say that I didn't actually see any of this directly. But I saw at least one of the young women. I did gather that basically these were lovely young women, very well turned out, very uh, usually rather affluent, often rather tall because American girls of that age were better fed and so forth. Tall, lovely, with gorgeous hair, beautifully clothed, beautifully mannered, and intelligent as well. And I think this was quite a shock, not only for my father, but also for my mother. And of course she was a year younger than my father and always looked much, much younger than him, right up until the time of their old age. She did begin to feel, well, I'm not a young woman anymore. And I think that was testing for her. Also, I think it was for him because he got used to being, um, if not adored, then at least respected in a way that the boys of Bishop Wordsworth School had not done. And it was also his first experience of, of teaching young woman, women. And I think it must have been quite amazing. And if you add that to the fact that this was still only just after the post-war austerity period, and here he was suddenly in America, where there were big cars and peaches and goodness knows what, and lots and lots of drink, and people being very charming. I think it must have been a volatile situation. I only met, I think, two of these girls. And one of them, at least, had ravishing red hair and was red-gold hair and was an absolute humdinger. And while she may have been unusual, she can't have been completely unusual because there were obviously groups of them all going around like fantastic butterflies or birds of paradise. And the sheer beauty just hanging around casually on this also rather beautiful little campus in Virginia I think must have um, created a storm. But was it after that trip that he began to build what you call an elaborate hide for himself? Did, did he retreat from the adulation and the publicity after that? He certainly retreated from the publicity and he was very chary of giving interviews. And I think, certainly in family terms, he retreated just because it got complicated. He retreated from the obvious admiration of young women, and I think that's probably quite a, a common thing for married men. But I suppose the whole fame aspect of America, because that was when he started really to be famous. He went on his great lecture tour, and he became a bit of a a mild campus star. He was very good at performing. He was a terrific lecturer. I think the whole fame business seemed to him a little bit of a trap. And I think the novel he wrote after that period, The, the Spa, 
I think some of the aspects of the main character who is called Jocelyn and who's the dean of the cathedral who gets this bar built, I think some of his sort of hurried wild animal look comes slightly from that experience that my father had of, of thinking this fame business is, is troubling. And you talk about him being willing to pay a high price for peace at home. What was, what was the price that he was paying? What was he giving up in order to have peace? Well, I think he was giving up the kind of buccaneering side of him, the side that might have liked just to go off and be sort of on the road and go around with other writers getting drunk and talking in cafes till three in the morning. I think he realised you just couldn't do that, not only if you were going to be Benedict the Married Man sort of thing, but also if you were going to take seriously your job as a writer. I think he felt that the wilder aspects of a traditional writer just really didn't help him at all, and what he should do was treat it as a job. And I think later he really did that. He sat down every morning and he wrote his 2,000 words. And I think that was the way he chose to do it. In terms of other relationships, there was one important relationship which I felt he did limit because it upset my mother. There's a limit to what I can say about it as well as the limit my father set. And I know that was a sacrifice for him, and I think my mother knew that too, which was horrible for her. But basically, he couldn't do both, and I don't think anything could really have broken them up. And they, they weathered that, that particular period. But I think it was during the, quote, years of silence, unquote, the 70s, and I think it probably took its toll. Do you understand your father's attitude to class? Because on one hand, it seemed to be something which rankled quite deeply, and yet on the other hand, he seemed to have a, a need to at least have you two children educated in a way that made you more at ease than, than he had been with the, the class system. Well, I think that that's probably what happens. There's this dreadful thing about the first ever Labour government that George V apparently said, look, you know, they don't have to get all these silly clothes. Tell them they don't. But they were desperate to do so, to get all the proper court clothes so that they could turn up and be a proper governing set of people. And in the same way, my dad loathed and despised the class pyramid and devotes a whole novel to showing its terrible effects. But he wanted for the people he loved and for himself, he wanted to be part of what he saw as the winning side. And so I went to Godolphin and my brother went to the local cathedral school and he would have gone to a private school as well if it hadn't been so obvious that Bishop Wordsworth was a really excellent school. But I didn't understand this till I was long past grown up. And I realised that I wasn't frightened of the things my father was frightened of. Because clearly there was a danger that you would imbibe values that he didn't share. You would, you would become more part of the problem than, than the solution. Well, there was a point where I did tell him of something that had happened at school, which I thought at the time was very funny, and I thought was a victory for our side, the pupils against the teachers. And he saw it differently. He saw it as a victory for the socially poised against the socially disadvantaged. And he put his head in his hands. And then I realised that the whole thing could be seen very differently. I think he knew that I wasn't that stuck in it all. 
what he wanted, he wanted to give us the equipment to move in any environment that we wanted to. And to a certain extent, I think he did that. But I hope it doesn't mean, I don't know, I, I don't know if it means that I support the social pyramid. I hope not. When did you first get a book by your father? I read Lord of Flies when it first came out when I was nine, and I was extremely puzzled by it, and all I really m remember was noticing that it contained a reference to Swallows and Amazons, which was a book I did understand and I was very fond of. And then I didn't read his books for ages. He told me not to read The Inheritors. I don't remember being told not to read Pinch Martin, but I can't believe he would have wanted me to read it. And then after a while, especially when I went to university, and people started asking me, my tutors started asking me, what do you think your father meant by such and such? And do you have any information about, for example, how they built the spire? And I thought, I can't be doing with this. And so, I was quite a truthful young woman. I thought, well, I won't read them, and then I can say I hadn't read them. And I stopped reading them for many years, actually. And it wasn't until I was about, well, I suppose 35, that I started reading them again. And I still find it rather odd. I still find it almost as if I'm getting into something too intimate of his, part of his mind. Do they seem to be the product of the man that you knew, or do you have to somehow sort of recalibrate him as a father when you read his books? Do, do, they, do they sit easily together in, in your mind? That's really interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I don't know. I think with the early ones, I don't have to recalibrate. With some of the later ones, I think I do. With the C trilogy. Because it is in a very different language. And a very deliberately different one. The one I find almost hardest to associate with him is the double tongue. Because it's got a, a first person narration. And the first person narrator is a woman. And I found this quite disturbing, partly because I can see from it what he thought women were like, or what they thought, and also because I feel in, he makes her rather plain. I feel, gosh, is that what he thought about women? Is that what he thought about me? And so that's a very difficult one for me. But the early novels, I think I just accepted as being part of this sort of fiery imagination he obviously had. Yeah, I, I wondered how far you felt he understood women. You talked one, at one point in the book about his need for your mother being great, but his understanding of her, to say the least, being incomplete. And I wondered if you felt he had difficulty understanding women. Yes, I think he did. I think he did. There are lots of things I remember about this. He would never... He would never, never, never organise wrapping Christmas presents for my mother. She wrapped all the other Christmas presents, obviously. And then, sort of late on Christmas Eve, he would come up the steps to my attic bedroom and knock on the door and say, can you give me... Oh, no, he wouldn't even say, can you give me a hand? He would say, do you have some sellotape? And he would produce this small and probably very lovely jeweler's box, almost always, with some paper wrapped very inadequately around it, usually not even enough paper. Clearly, what he actually wanted me to do was to say, can you please wrap this? And he didn't understand that my mother would far rather have him wrap it, however badly, than have her rather pretty little daughter wrap it all beautifully and do a nice little bow. When, obviously, the present then presented to her had been kind of mediated by another woman, 
He just didn't understand that. He didn't understand it at all. And there were many really quite basic examples like that that he just didn't have a clue about. And I, I find it rather sweet in some ways, but also quite amazing that somebody could live that long and be that unaware about 50% of, um, of people, well, 51% I suppose. Because it sounds as though all of you in the family were quite sensitive to the dynamic that existed between other members of the family. You were, you know, there were jealousies and sensibilities there. So in a way, it is quite surprising that he, that he didn't uh, sort of pick, on, pick up on that sort of thing. I think it's very surprising he didn't pick that up. Later, he was certainly aware that she, my mother, found it hard to see him talking to me and not including her. And there were cases at the dinner table. But generally, you see, everybody muddled through. And there were lots of happy things between the two of them. And this structure that we were all, I think, aware of was there. But a lot of the time, you didn't need to take any notice of it. You could just get on with having supper and um, doing the things that families do and going on holiday. I mean, we went on holiday hugely together. But when I had children, we all went on these enormous holidays in Brittany. And the family just kept on busily doing what families do. Judy, let me ask you in conclusion, we began by talking about questions that you, you might have had unresolved when you set out on this shortly after your father's death. Do you have a sense of completion, of closure, to use a, the modern word? I think I do, certainly to the extent that I feel I've written that and done that and it's completed and I can put a lot of it really behind me. Except here I am talking about it and still fascinated, so I don't know. I was very lucky to have such a rich childhood, even if it had some bad bits in it. And I don't think people put their childhood behind them, really. I was talking to Judy Golding about Children of Lovers, a memoir of William Golding by his daughter. It's available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast. There are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber Podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.